Hello, hockey humans of the world. Thanks for tuning in to Tough Call Pod, where I talk about all things player safety in the NHL. Controversial hits, horrible calls. Join the 2,300 others who follow me on Twitter at, at @toughcallblog and at the Tough Call Facebook page for videos of incidents and comments. And go ahead and hit the subscribe button for this podcast right now to get all my sizzling hot takes on them. While you're there, you might as well give it a rating as well, preferably five stars. Did you do it? Good, and thank you. Now on with the show. Finally, we have the return of NHL hockey with the players getting a chance to try their luck in some exhibition games before the playoffs start. And with the NHL being in the NHL, of course, they couldn't even get through a few exhibition games without some incidents to talk about. Uh, the first one is uh, Brendan Lemieux of the New York Rangers getting in a fight. As you may remember, Lemieux was suspended by the NHL's Department of Player Safety for two games of the play-in round against the Carolina Hurricanes. But he was allowed to participate in Wednesday's exhibition game against the state rival New York Islanders. I can understand to a certain extent how Lemieux was allowed to play in the in the game, in the exhibition game. It would be hard to work out the suspension timeline that they had. But it's it's just an awfully compromising position to be put in as the NHL. And, and sure enough, he goes and gets in a fight. And of course, against a fairly important Islander in Johnny Boychuk. Now, I admittedly didn't watch this game. I have no idea what the fight was about. Lemieux could have been the cleanest player on the ice. But... I do bet there was some nail-biting in the NHL's head offices. I, I suppose that's no different than a player being suspended in, in the preseason. I mean, what if there was one preseason game left before the regular season? But in that case, the suspension should be served immediately. And while it was, quote-unquote, a, a meaningless game, there was a lot at stake for everyone in terms of keeping everyone healthy and ready for the, quote-unquote, real games. So it, it is a unique situation to have a suspended player be able to participate in exhibition games, especially when the next games are so meaningful, and he could have done a lot of damage. CTE certainly doesn't care what type of game it is, what type of game it occurs in. The brain doesn't care what kind of game it is. Uh, Hockey is hockey, and if you're suspended, you're suspended, and and I think that should be it. I I don't really think he should have been allowed to play based on what was at stake. There were two other notable incidents from the exhibition games, and and both came on Thursday night, the final night of meaningless games before the play-in rounds and top-seeding round robin. The first was Vegas tough guy Ryan Reeves finding himself under the microscope yet again for his hit on Nick Schmaltz of the Arizona Coyotes. Schmaltz was in a board battle for the puck, and he wasn't even fully in possession when Reeves came down to engage him, which, fair enough... uh, He's allowed to engage a player in a puck battle and and try and remove him from the situation. But Reeves was never trying to make a play on the puck. He was never trying to gain body position for that hockey purpose. He was never trying to join the battle. His mission was always to erase his opponent from the battle altogether. Like I said in my intro episode, when players get themselves in the most trouble is, is when they ignore the hockey aspect of what they're trying to accomplish. When they ignore the puck, the hockey play, and they go for the hit. And that's what Reeves was doing. He was going for the hit. And and this is when players do things wrong. This is when things tend to go wrong. Because mentally, they're already committed to the hit. They are much less likely to back out of a checking situation when it is no longer there if they go into it thinking that all they want to accomplish is throwing a check. Now, to be fair, Reeves steps down in good low posture. He's got one hand on his stick, and the stick is on the ice, and his right arm and shoulder are safely tucked in. 
So much so that, in fact, I tweeted out a set of four pictures showing Reeves' approach from behind him. And you can't even see his arm at all because it's resting across his own stomach. It's tucked away. All you can see are his numbers. You can't see any part of his right arm. Not even the elbow. And this is pretty much the ideal position in which to deliver a check. So hopefully you would think he would be going down just to check and to engage and get body position. You could debate a little bit whether Schmaltz was eligible to be checked at the time, since the puck was still up for grabs technically, no one had possession, but it does hit his skate prior to contact. And either way, like I said, it should be fair game to engage a player or forcibly shove him out of the area of a puck battle. Reeves is in prime position to do that. But also in these four pictures, I show that in the second or two prior to contact, Reeves' arm goes from being completely invisible to extending out so far as to be literally the only part of his body that makes contact with Schmaltz. He literally reaches out and up with his shoulder and forearm to clock Schmaltz in the head. Yes, Schmaltz is vulnerable and his head is down looking for the puck, but that doesn't make this any less of a dangerous targeting of the head by Reeves, and it doesn't mean it should be suspended any less. Schmaltz's head snaps back so hard from impact that it lifts the rest of his upper body with it, which is the only reason Reeves even comes close to making contact with Schmaltz's body. If Reeves had used his own core, and Schmaltz had essentially run straight into his shoulder with his head, uh, there wouldn't be a problem here. But what we have to recognize is, it isn't Schmaltz's head being contacted as a result of a legal hockey check to a vulnerable player. It's Schmaltz's head being contacted while vulnerable as a result of Reeves illegally driving his shoulder and arm directly upward and outward into it. It is avoidable, and it should have been avoided. I'd suspend Reeves three playoff games for elbowing. The second one was a hit on Nashville Predator Dante Fabro by Dallas star Jason Dickinson. And as I said on my Twitter for this one, the problem here is all about angle of approach. That's the entire issue. Except for a minor explosion into the hit, Dickinson's body posture is pretty good. He's nice and low with his knees bent, his shoulders tucked in, and his stick is safely to the side. But he's coming from behind Fabro, and they kind of meet on a 45-degree angle to each other. Picture two players skating side by side about, about 10 feet apart, and then, and then both of them turning toward each other at a 45-degree angle, and so their paths would eventually collide. You'd think that would turn into a nice side-by-side -side collision, right? But we can't forget that hockey players need to keep a puck traveling with them. So in this instance, it's Fabro. He's a right shot carrying the puck, and Dickinson's approaching Fabro's left shoulder with his own right. Fabro is hunched over, but, but that's because he's supposed to be. He's allowed to make a hockey play with the puck. He does nothing unexpected or unusual with it. He makes a, a predictable hockey play that you would expect someone to make and that Dickinson should be able to predict as an NHL player. Dickinson has a long time to see this and adjust. And so much time that he actually does make an adjustment at the last second. Un unfortunately, that adjustment is to turn into Fabro and, and hit him in the head instead of adjusting to make sure he doesn't hit him in the head. Yes, Fabro is eligible to be checked, but too quickly we make excuses for the player delivering the check by blaming the player who has the puck and making himself vulnerable. The onus is on the player delivering the check. It has to be. The puck carrier needs to be able to make a hockey play. We want speed and skill to win the game. We want it to be the focal point of the game. We want the best players to be able to do the best things. But then they always get blamed first when things go wrong. Dickinson had other options, let's not forget that. He had time to think of those other options. He had plenty of time to do it. And if he had time to adjust to turn into Fabro like he did, 
He just as easily could have adjusted to safely bump Fabro's shoulder or core instead of his head. He could have adjusted to, to make it safer. I would suspend Dickinson two playoff games for charging, and this was a big miss by the Department of Player Safety, particularly when you realize that this was called by the officials on the ice. Dickinson was assessed a two-minute minor for an illegal check to the head, so it's a glaring problem that they didn't reinforce that decision with a suspension, and it's definitely going to cost them moving forward. Hi folks, thanks for listening to Tough Call. If you're enjoying my takes on head contact and player safety, but you'd like to hear me talk about other aspects of hockey, I'd like to take just a minute and tell you about another project of mine, Bolton from Bolton. Bolton from Bolton is where I, Josh Bolton, and my brother Matt, you guessed it, Bolton, set each other up for lively hockey talk covering literally anything to do with it. It's not heavy analysis and stats, it's kitchen banter, like you do with your own family and friends. Head over to YouTube and subscribe to our Bolton from Bolton channel. That's B-O-U-L-T-O-N. Or find us on all audio formats as well. We find ourselves funny. Maybe you will too. And there's only one way to find out. See you there. And now, back to Tough Call. Now, speaking on suspension length, particularly in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs, I'm looking at an article from scoutingtherefs.com that dated June 30th, 2020, entitled, How Long Will Rangers' Brendan Lemieux Be Suspended? Love those guys at Scouting the Refs. At Scouting the Refs on Twitter, follow along, they're great. And in this article, they have quotes from Brian Burke, who used to be in charge of discipline in the NHL, and he used to be the vice president of hockey operations in the NHL. I believe that was his title. And they have quotes from here, so I'm going to use those quotes directly from the article as they're written. This is taken directly from the article. Brian Burke. I don't think player safety explains adequately how games are weighted in the playoffs. In the first round of the playoffs, under the system that I used, that they still use, the games are weighted at 2 or 3 to 1. So if you're going to give a suspension in game 82 of the regular season, let's say it's a three-game suspension. That equals a one-game suspension in the first round. It might be a six-game suspension turns into a two-game suspension in the second round. In the finals, we used to use a factor of six to eight games per game. So Claude Lemieux, his suspension in the 1996 Western Conference Final was two games in the finals. That would have been a 16 to 20 game suspension in the regular season. Now, I don't always agree with what Brian Burke says, but he is right about the NHL Department of Player Safety and that they need to be more clear on how many games things are worth, especially in playoff suspensions. I disagree with this scale that one game is equal to three or four playoff games in the second round, and a one-game suspension of the finals is equivalent to six to eight regular season games. In fact, I don't just disagree with it. It actually terrifies me, because he's saying that the suspension to Claude Lemieux would have been a 16 to 20 game suspension in the regular season. That's what he's saying, that Claude Lemieux got a two-game suspension in the playoffs, and it was equal to a 16-20 to game suspension in the regular season. So first of all, you're saying that if one Stanley Cup final game is equal to six regular season games, then you can't really suspend anyone in the Stanley Cup final for doing anything worth less than six games. Because you can't possibly suspend someone for one Stanley Cup final game for something worth one game, or even two games, or even three regular season games. 
and then also suspend someone else one Stanley Cup final game for something that's worth six to eight regular season games. It just doesn't make sense. Plus, more to the point of why you suspend in the first place is it's not just to punish the person for what they did. It's not just to punish the specific incident, but it's also to try and stop people from doing it again in the future. I would hope that there would be nothing I could do in a Stanley Cup final game. I don't care what kind of game it is. I would hope that I would not be able to do anything in an NHL game that would be worth 16 to 20 regular season games and suspensions, where I would still be allowed to play in that Stanley Cup final anymore. I've, I've never competed in the Stanley Cup final or even competed in an NHL game, but I can tell you that if I did something that, that was worth 16 to 20 regular season games, I don't care when it was. If they suspended me and I was arguing that it was too long because it was a Stanley Cup final game, then I deserve everything I get. Because if I'm complaining that punishment is too harsh, then I didn't learn a damn thing, and I'm pretty likely to do that thing again. That scale sets the NHL up for some serious problems, and probably liability, I would say. I doubt it's what's really used, but if it is used, it explains a lot about why players get away with so much and why the NHL is so complacent with dangerous plays, even when they involve avoidable head contact. At Tough Call, I'm not trying to pick on specific teams or individual players. I want to make the game safer for every player on every team, across every league really, with no player left behind. I want to cover as many incidents as I possibly can to increase the sample size and make a stronger case for how harsher penalties and properly targeted player education can work in reducing head contact in hockey, all instances of it. The Department of Player Safety supposedly has people watching every second of every game. Now, as much as I'd like to watch every game, as much as I try to, and as much as I'd like to have video of every questionable incident, the truth is, I'm only one man with an iPhone and the Game Center app. I already get a lot of help from people like you who send me videos or links to incidents, or even just a quick tweet or message saying, hey, did you see? Third period, Bolts-Kings game, checking to the head penalty. Something like that. It means a lot, and it makes a huge difference. Follow me on Twitter at at ToughCallBlog and like the Facebook page ToughCall and as you watch, if you see a cheap play or something dirty or anything that makes you go, hey you idiot, what are you watching? How did you miss that? Please send it my way and a big thank you to those of you who already do. Keep them coming.